Hello, everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. My name is Gary Fowler. I'm the CEO, President, and Co-Founder of GSD, Get You Done Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Love artificial intelligence and quantum computing, been involved in 17 startups and two unicorns. I was on the original management team of Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion and several others, including Eva.ai, an AI HR talk company that I co-founded with Dr. David Yang. We believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world and opportunities are not. And with that, I've got to introduce my friend, Amit Grover. Amit's a proud Kiwi, a gender equality ambassador, ESG-focused VC, impact investor, MBA board member. He's a co-founder and managing partner at Grover and Company and Grover Impact Ventures, an ESG-focused fund manager building an impact fund in the United Arab Emirates. He comes uh, through with over 24 years worth of professional and entrepreneurial experience in marketing, management consulting, and venture capital. He's worked in uh, MNCs such as ITC Limited, Barista Coffee Company, and Pernod Ricard. He's distinguished with a full-time MBA degree from Victoria University of Wellington, uh, New Zealand. So with that, I'd like to bring my friend Amit on. Hi, Amit. How are you doing today? Very well, Gary, and thank you for having me on your show. So tell me a little bit about it. So, you know, did you grow up? You went. You were at the University of Madras. When did you go to New Zealand? Well, I mean, I, I, I was born and raised in New Delhi, the capital city of India. I, I really left for New Zealand to do a full-time MBA program. And this was in the year 2005. That's when I kind of went to New Zealand. And how was it? In, what's it like in New Zealand? Well, I mean, you know, compared to where I come from, which is India, it's a completely culture change and a complete stock, uh, you know, landscape change. So A, it's probably, arguably, one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And um, and at that, a very friendly country. I mean, as an immigrant who went as a full-time international student, I uh, had no trouble integrating uh, among the locals and making them friends. And uh, then uh, little that I knew that it was a long career and time to come in New Zealand. So look, it's to me, obviously, it's a personal bias, but I, I, I think it's the best country in the world. So what do you do for fun in New Zealand? Well, I think people only have fun in New Zealand, to be honest. I mean, you're blessed with sun, sand, beaches, mountains, ski slopes. Um, so look, I mean, New Zealand is much about outdoor, Gary. Uh, and, and, and one would go for bushwalks. You would often spend time at the beaches. If you're into adventure sports, then you're in the heaven of adventure sports. So, you know, from snorkeling to diving to, you know, ice skating to snowboarding, uh, you name it. And the terrain is such stark terrain from white sand beaches to snow peak mountains to uh, volcanoes and glaciers to right to lakes. So, uh, you know, you've, you, you've literally been blessed with everything. And um, so, yeah, people are pretty outdoorsy. And people generally tend to spend uh, spend time outside their homes. Really? And now, do you have a lot of wild critters like you do in Australia, brown snakes and those kind of things? Uh, Actually, is... not at all. In fact, millions of years back when New Zealand broke away from Australia and became an independent country geographically, uh, it was blessed 
to have no predators. There is actually not a single predator in New Zealand except for you know a couple of bush spiders that you get uh, while you're in the forest. But barring that, mate, there's nothing. There's no sharks. You don't uh, have big crocodiles in the lake. No, nothing, nothing. No, no snakes, no crocodiles, um, no animals that could harm you. Well, that sounds like too good to be true. Yeah, yeah, it is. How about rabbits? Do they have a lot of rabbits like in Australia? Yeah, heaps of them, mate. I mean, heaps of them. I mean, I think in Australia, probably kangaroos are, you know, kind of outnumber rabbits. But, uh, but in New Zealand, you've got a lot of rabbits. Actually, uh, to be honest, uh, New Zealand as a country has introduced a lot of animals, uh, you know, that, that that's not been native there, like deers. Now, and today you've got a big problem with the infestation of deers. They've grown and multiplied at a volume, which is crazy. Uh, and hence, you know, kind of hunting is legal. Um, so stuff like that, mate. Ah, interesting. And so, yeah. so uh, in terms of you went to school in Wellington, how far is that? Where is that exactly in the country? So, so, so New Zealand is divided between North Island and South Island, the two islands that make New Zealand. And Wellington is at the southern tip of North Island. So it's the end of North Island. It's also the capital city of New Zealand where the government is based. Um, it's a picture perfect uh, harbor city with mountains and harbor. Uh, it's one of the windiest cities in the world. I mean, on a bad day, you could get winds as high as 130 kilometers an hour. Seriously? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not kidding you. If you walk on the streets, there are metal bars that are put everywhere, <clears throat> for especially old people and children. On a, on a windy day, you've got to kind of get hold of them. And because Wellington is a hilly terrain, um, you know, one kind of rarely get, gets the gust of the wind. I remember studying in the library late and coming down to my grad accommodation and mate, uh, cold and windy uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it, and I'm a big guy. So it would, the wind would move somebody like me. So I can imagine for somebody. Who's oh my gosh, that's summer. unbelievable. So yeah, yeah, how mate. warm would it be in the summer? Would it be warm? Is it that, uh, what about summer and winter? Is how warm? Well, in New Zealand, uh, you know, obviously the more north you go, which means the more closer to Australia you go, it gets a bit warmer. So quintessentially, Auckland is warm. Uh, but when we talk about warm, it's not really what you see in Dubai or this part of the world. I mean, uh, when I moved to New Zealand progressively, Barry, over the years, it's getting warmer. Everybody, Everywhere it's getting warmer. Uh, but you'd be looking at early 30s, and that's your perfect summer. And, um, you know, late, um, you know, early 20s in the evening. Today, one can kind of look at mid-30s. It can get up to mid-30s, and there's a heat wave that's declared the moment it's mid-30s. So uh, wow. you don't generally cross 34, 35, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And so so what made you decide to go from New Zealand over to Dubai? What was it? Did you wake up one day and say, I'm sick of the winds, I'm leaving? No, or no, no, no. In fact, if, if at all, I miss New Zealand every single minute of my life. I mean, to be honest, for me, though I come from India, I was born in New Delhi. But for me, home is New Zealand. Um, you know, I miss being, you know, with my fellow Kiwis and working out of there. Uh, what really uh, got me to Dubai are two, two things. Number one, I was on a rapid expansion with my business. So my first venture has been a management consulting practice that I built. I started in the year 2007, uh, basically piggybacking on my work experience uh, and working with small, medium New Zealand and Australian companies. So we've had a rapid expansion. I, I, I expanded to Australia and then Dubai. So Dubai was in the cards. Uh, you know, I wanted to open an office, wanted to help my clients in Australia, New Zealand, pave the way in that part of the world, which is Middle East and India. 
so partly that and partly my wife who was based here with a job so you know both um, you know kind of um, areas made me move so i got a question for you how good is the indian food in new zealand I love um, Indian. I'm crazy about Indian food. Is it because some places they, they call it Indian food and it's not really spicy and it doesn't taste the same? Is yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. So, so if if you're talking about Indian food, I come from the heart of Indian food, which is New Delhi. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I compare to that, I don't think New Zealand really matches up, or any other country matches up. Maybe London does because of the amount of Indian. Oh yeah, on Saturday nights yeah, in London, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. half the houses have curry, right? Absolutely. So, but New Zealand, no. I mean, they've obviously uh, kiwi-ized, like we say, the Indian dishes, so which is much more milder and sweeter in taste. But look, when you don't get any anything decent, you even you get what you you know you you kind of are happy with what you get. But Dubai is a completely different story because of how many Indians live here. There's some fabulous restaurants that you can go and eat. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I'm getting hungry for some vindaloo right now. I'll tell you what, you're making me really hungry. And those peas, oh man, chickpeas. Okay, so tell me a little bit about it. You got, you were a summer intern in Escorts Limited. What is yes. that? It's an industrial trainee. What was that? Yes, so so um, this is way back in my undergrad days. So I, uh, you know, did a summer training in the corporate finance area. Escorts is a publicly listed Indian company that is into automotive components and agricultural machinery. Um, they're probably worth about $10, $12 billion as a conglomerate. Mm-hmm. At the time I was involved with them, they got into multiple joint ventures. They, they, they tried to get the first Indian supermarket chain up and going. That was quite a failure at that time. India was not ready for organized retail. Uh, they also did a joint venture with this Japanese company called Yamaha. Uh, to to kind of make uh, you know motorcycles and sell it to India, so they went to multiple large ventures. I, as an industrial trainee, was responsible for learning the entire process of public listing a couple of their verticals. So as a corporate, they were listed, but then at that stage, they were trying to list a couple of their joint ventures in the Indian Stock Exchange. So I was a part, was a very small part of the large team that was facilitating that entire move, and uh, I was learning the ropes, mate. Yeah, yeah. Now, so we, and we all got to go down through, you know, having an internship is a really important thing. So you went down through DLF Limited. Uh, then yeah. you were at Barista Coffee Company, part of the marketing team, yes. Pernod uh, Ricard yeah. Marketing. So you've spent a lot of time in marketing. Why did you make the switch to from marketing to management consulting? What was uh, you went to grow your your own company? But what made yes. you decide to do that? Well, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, uh, you know, having spent the length of time in brand marketing that I did and uh, learning complex distribution, uh, you know, kind of based businesses. When you're talking about India, you're talking about volumes, you're talking about a large country, you're talking about, you know, very complex consumer segments that you're dealing with. Uh, you know, you go north to south, everything changes. South through west, everything changes. So, uh, you know, in a country that diverse and that large, uh, you know, one learned a lot of knowledge on how do you really market to consumers. So when I went to New Zealand, I think the entrepreneurial bug really bit me, Gary, because in Kiwis, like Kiwi say, they believe in, um, you know, inventing a job, not, you know, finding a job. So I think it's a very, very entrepreneurial country. And when I, when I went there and did my MBA, I obviously equipped myself with the knowledge and the frameworks and the tools to encase my experience in a formal way and market that to the market that, look, I'm here. Uh, I have a lot of experience in international markets in the roles that I've done in the past. 
Uh, I've done education from your country and I'd like to help you uh, get to international markets. So that's the reason I got into consulting. I just wanted to market my own uh, skills and my own knowledge to the wider market in New Zealand. Yeah. So was that company located in the UK or was that company located? No, no. So it started in Wellington, New Zealand, the capital city. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it took shape. You know, I started this from a cafe uh, right after my MBA, working by myself and marketing my credentials. A few years later, I moved to Auckland, the largest city of New Zealand, and set up shop in a corporate tower. So I was, we are still at the PwC tower, which is today, I believe, called the HSBC tower. Uh, they keep changing the name and rights. And um, slowly in 2012, we expanded to Australia and Sydney uh, at the International Trade Towers. Uh, in 2017, like I said, that I expanded the practice to Dubai uh, in the Emirates Stars out here in the heart of town. Uh, and in 2019, just before the pandemic really hit, uh, we domiciled our business in the UK, in London, uh, because we wanted to tap into the EU and the UK market. So it made a lot of sense to then, you know, do the transition of the headquarters becoming UK and the branch office becoming Auckland. Before that, it was the other way around. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it actually started from New Zealand, went into Australia, came into Dubai, and then finally the UK. So then you started, you went into uh, venture impact funds. You know, let's talk about it. what's going on with impact funds. I know you've got yeah. over impact ventures, you know, and part of uh, N ventures where yeah. you were a partner yeah. and are a partner. So, sure. so first of all, what's the difference between N ventures and Grover impact ventures? Look, both of them are impact funds. Uh, obviously, the subject matter is different and the, 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 the wealth is different that both these funds are trying to manage. So N Ventures is a ESG focused fund that predominantly works in the domain of artificial intelligence and blockchain uh, and machine learning. Uh, they've identified four specific sectors that they want to drive with technology and impact. So the first being health tech. The second being education technology, the third being financial technology, and the lastly, climate technology. So it's a it's it's a hundred million dollar fund, and the unique part about that fund is it's got a very strong partnership, Gary, with a company, a U.S. company called Frost and Sullivan, uh, who are management consultants for decades. Uh, with the network that Frost enjoys across the world, I mean, I believe that they're in over 28 countries, over 10,000 people, uh, you know, one has a very unique ability to accelerate and scale ventures based on that infrastructure. So, so it's, it's predominantly the deep technology investments. It's a Singapore domicile fund. Uh, there are five people that run that. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky to be a part of that team. I look after the Middle East, so venture sourcing and capital. How big sourcing. is the total fund? What's the uh, fund size? $100 million at the end. What, so what's the focus of the fund and how much of it do you have deployed right now? Yeah, but the focus of the fund is, uh, you know, I'm not at liberty to saying how much we have deployed uh, because of confidentiality, but the focus of the fund is 100 mil. Uh, we want to bootstrap about 50 companies. We typically look at late seed to early Series A and Series A investments, upwards of $500,000 a venture. Uh, I do believe that we've got five, rather six active ventures at the moment, and the idea is to find another 44. 44 and how long has the fund been open i think about a year so it's just under a year that the fund has been officially registered and open for business so what are you uh, so, looking for me like what does a company profile look like and where are they from 
So, so uh, the company profile of the ventures that we are looking at are global ventures. So we are trying to kind of work with ventures all over the world. Uh, typically, like I said, the areas that we are looking at, uh, we prefer post-revenue. We are not really in the startup ecosystem, so we prefer post-revenue ventures. Still early stage, mind you. Um, and we want to kind of help them accelerate with our investment and the connections that Frost gets on the board. So that's what mm -hmm. typically we are looking at. Yeah. Got it. And so... You know, if you look at, so impact means a lot to uh, people. And we know that, you know, that ESG and food tech, of course, by 2050, we have to double the food supply to feed everybody. And we can't increase the number of livestock because, oh, by the way, cows uh, uh, consist of, are going to attribute to 26% of the pollution on the planet today. So we got to move to other ways or, or we're not going to be able to feed everybody. What are companies, so if you look at it today, I know you're looking at uh, early stage uh, companies. So yeah. alternative protein, alternative dairy, what are you looking at? And, you know, tell me what the sweet spot would be. What kind of a company? Sure. So this is uh, nothing to do with N Ventures. This is Grover Impact Ventures we are talking about. Yes. Now. So the Food Technology Fund is uh, housed under Grover Impact Ventures. It is domiciled in Dubai. It's a $50 million fund. We're still building it up. Uh, you know, we're past the mid midpoint in terms of capital raising. Um, so we've uh, the, the story goes that we've executed about 28 term sheets in the final stages of due diligences. And we've got to find another 80 of them. Uh, you know, the idea is to go over 100 ventures with an average of five to $600,000 a venture. So we typically look at ourselves coming in before the Series A round and helping companies go to series A and series B. So the thesis goes like this, Gary. So we are looking at early stage companies, again, post-revenue, we are not looking at startups. Uh, number two, we are looking at the alt protein and the alt dairy ecosystem. So plant-based and vegan are just a small part of it. You know, we are looking at cellular agriculture, microalgae, fermentation, and many other technologies, uh, including cell-based meat. Um, so this is what we are I looking at. You've seen a, I mean, I bet you've seen a lot of wild companies, huh? A lot of yes, interesting. Well, tell me about, without naming the names, what's the most um, incredible company that you've seen? If you look at it, like they've done something, alternative protein, uh, et cetera. But what kind of company? Because I've tasted some of the, uh, you know, some of the plant-based, uh, yeah. I don't mean just Boca burgers either. Yeah. And some uh, of honestly, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm blatantly honest, being a foodie myself, Nothing that I've tasted in the plant-based area, and I've tasted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples, has impressed me till now, to be very honest. You know, if you're trying to call something plant-based chicken, or you're trying to call something plant-based beef, uh, you know, the moment you piggyback on those names, which are chicken, beef, and fish, you've got to be ready for a very critical review of what that tastes like. Either you don't call it chicken, beef, and fish, you call it just protein, then people would have a much broader mind in evaluating. But the moment you piggyback on things that are popular, uh, you know, people tend to compare the taste profile. No, I agree. You know, it's like, um, I don't know if you've yeah. had an alligator or a snake, but it all tastes like yeah. chicken, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't had alligator or snake, but I can tell you Ed, that I yet am yet to be blown off my thoughts from the vegan and the plant-based. What yeah. really have impressed me to a great deal is the emergence of uh, cell-based meat. Because I do believe somewhere that that is the future. Factory farming, whether it's the aquaponics, hydroponics, or developing uh, meat in a lab and figuring out an industrial production method, 
to get the cost down. Uh, I personally feel that's the way to reduce the dependence on livestock, to use technology to produce good quality meat that can be contained in terms of quality and the production process, as well as, you know, take the pressure off the land and avoid deforestation. So now, how do you know, I mean, I got a question for you. This is just me. Yes. So if somebody's a vegetarian and they make a uh, cell-based meat, but it's not really from an animal, right? No, it is from an animal. It's 100% from an animal. It is. It takes the tissues and the cells of an animal meat and replicates that in a lab. It's very similar to the same technology used in stem cell when they try to multiply the cells in your body if you're having typically a cancer therapy. Uh, so it takes on that method and replicates the strains of meat. It is 100% animal product without the animal cruelty. Have you, have you tested it? Not as yet. I was not in Singapore when the tasting was going on for shiok meats. I would be I would be very I curious would. about you know how close I it is. Well. I know what I tried before and it, you know it didn't taste bad, but honestly it didn't taste like any kind of meat I have had. Yeah, I mean it, you know. So I'm just yeah. I'm real curious about it. And I know um, you know we have a lot of technologies out there. I mean yeah. they can you know clone dogs now for twenty five thousand. So if you love your I dog. Know. And you want to have another one? You can get another one for. I, know, I, know. I told my wife, clone my basset yeah, 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 yeah. You're yeah. crazy. Why would yeah. you want another one? Like my dog. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go down. You know, we go down through, and it's. A, I mean, this is a big problem, right? So it is issue. You know, on the other side is when we go from population eight point one billion to thirteen billion. We're not going to have as much land. We're going to have to figure out how to go down through in food tech side, things like hydroponic and other ways to be able to to uh, optimize the space that we have because we're not going to have it. I think there are two aspects out here. One is obviously the dependence on land as the population increases and the volumes expected more. You need to have more sustainable ways of producing food that takes the pressure of the land and stops polluting the land. That's at one end of it. I think that at the other end of that, Gary, it's also very important to make a point out here that whatever you eat has got to be healthy made. I mean, you know, the amount of diseases and the amount of pandemics, the amount of viruses, bacteria, everything we are getting every year, there's something new that comes out. Obviously, the food chain, as we see it, is not the most efficient or healthy ways of doing things. So two things are happening that I saw in the pandemic. The first thing is, obviously, there's this for decades, there's been this pressure on take off the pressure of the land, become more sustainable, um, you know, stop cultivating livestock, go away from that. And the second aspect that I saw rising quite rapidly across the world is uh, the emergence of health and the focus on health, where customers started asking what am I putting in my system? Is it sustainable? Is it healthy? And I think that pretty much gave emergence to your plant-based and your, you know, kind of vegan um, alternatives and meat alternatives that you kind of see and enjoy today. Um, so that the two aspects: one is sustainable production and responsible consumption, and the other is health and well-being. So those two are going parallel with each other, Gary. No, I agree with you. I mean, it's you know, you know that that. We've got an interesting dilemma in front of us. You know, we're going to be able to live to 150. That's a forecasted age uh, going forward. At the same time, we've got increased population and we've got things like global warming. I mean, it's unbelievable. The average temperatures around the planet could be up as high as seven degrees Fahrenheit. By the end of the A little while back, we were talking about New Zealand. Honestly, when I moved for the first time in New Zealand, which was peak of the summers in February, that's when the new semester starts. We are looking at summers at the peak of it at 27. 
Today, if you go to Auckland or Wellington, summers, you're talking about 35, 36. So that's, so that's almost an eight to nine degree difference in probably what, 14 years? And how does, it, how does life change in New Zealand because of that? I mean, there are fires and wildfires happening every year. I mean, if you go on the rural New Zealand drive outskirts of the city, uh, you're looking at wildfires. So obviously, everything is brown rather than green, uh, you know, with fire warnings. In the city, obviously, a lot of buildings are catching fire. It's getting hotter. Uh, obviously, New Zealand as a country is not geared up for hot temperatures. So you don't have the houses that are made of timber and carpeted. It's more geared up for winters. So you've got heat that gets trapped because that's how they've been designed. And it's yeah. becoming unbearable. Uh, so air conditioning is going up. So obviously, a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, the more mm -hmm. air conditioning you use. Uh, fans are stock out. So when you kind of go to buy a fan in the summer season, they're sold out. Man. So obviously, it's getting hotter. New Zealand, because it suffers from the ozone depletion of where it is, skin cancer is getting bigger and bigger every year because of the planet warming up. So they are, you know, uh, a lot of systemic problems that this, this climate change is creating. And how is it, um, so if you look at, um, you know, the winters and summers, you know, how high, is it more tempered uh, now or is it more peaked? You're saying the temperatures have gone up. So, so have they gone to the extreme? Have the colds gotten colder? In the not world? as yet. No, not as yet. So what we're seeing is probably towards the South Island, which is which gets more snow, the cold is getting colder and you've got, you know, a far more problems that the snow creates than the, it did before. But in the north, what we are seeing is summers are getting prolonged. A, they're coming late. So typically in New Zealand, summers would kick in by December and go up to about March, April. Today, you're seeing summers actually kick in by mid-Jan or end-Jan. It's literally a month and a half shift from where it really started. Wow. And going up to May and maybe early June, um, that you could kind of see spells of a little bit of warmth. Um, so it's summers are definitely getting prolonged and it's wow. definitely coming late. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. No, we, we got a lot of challenges out there. So what do you look at, you know, right now? So if you look at the top three, what are the top three areas you want to invest in the moat? And I don't mean just food tech and alternative yeah. protein, but what areas directly? What really For excites me, you? You know, what excites me is less about, uh, you know, creating wealth. Having said that, obviously, wealth creation is an agenda for my investors. But climate tech, number one. That definitely, definitely needs a lot of intervention. I'm very passionate about that subject. Uh, alternative food sources, point number two, uh, which I'm very passionate about. And the third thing that I'm growing a lot of interest over the time is um, biomaterials and sustainable fashion. You know, the fashion industry, believe it or not, you know, is responsible so much of pollution and so much of animal cruelty. And I think with the emergence of, you know, materials from cactus, from pineapple, you know, you're looking at a seaweed, you're looking at sustainable fashion, sustainable bio leathers materials. So these are the three top for me, um, you know, uh, climate change, climate tech, food technology and fashion tech uh, that does it. Yeah. You know, people, you know, it's interesting because people talk about they don't eat meat. They're vegetarians. You know, they think it's wrong for cruelty to animals, but they're wearing leather shoes. Yeah. Uh, know, because they don't have an alternative, Gary. So if tomorrow, if I was to kind of wear a suit and go out, find non-leather, tell me which brand in the world is selling non-leather, even if even if I have the money to spend. You go to any of these designers, mate, you're from Prada to Gucci to Louis Vuitton to anybody, uh, you know, none of them are selling it. So, I mean, what the hell do you do?
Yeah, no, I got it. I agree with you 100%, but yeah. it's got to change because you can't have like your cake and eat it too. Either that or you wear sneakers that don't have any uh, leather on. So right? that's exactly what I do. I've stopped wearing suits. I don't even remember the last time I wore a suit. So I wear my jeans, my sneakers, my t-shirt, and that's it. That that's is my suit. <laughs> Remember, I'm from Silicon Valley. That is a suit. I, know, I, know. Yeah, I just yeah, don't yeah. wear the shorts. I wear my jeans. And if, yeah, I, if here. I'm really dressing up, I wear a black pair of them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here, mate. I'm a bit old school in that regard. I don't work in shorts. Um, you know, I find it a little crazy. But look, mate, I mean, the way, see, also, when you look at most of these areas that we are talking about in terms of investment, it's to a large extent, Gary, driven by trend of what's happening in the world. And the young guys are changing that trend. Today, you know, that whole quintessential suit with a tie collar and a pocket square and stuff like that, which our parents very proudly wore to work, uh, you know, that's all gone, mate. I mean, you're looking at young guys throwing a jacket, maybe a sneaker, and that's, uh, you know, red carpet dressing for them. Yeah, yeah no, um, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think times are changing and, and things are changing for the good or the bad. I don't know. We are yet to see that. But, uh, you know, embracing change has always been my mantra in life. You know, you've got embrace to embrace it. Absolutely. No, I agree. Don't that's, fight it, embrace it. Yeah. That's a good point. So we're coming up to the top of the hour. Me yeah. closing thoughts and how do people get a hold of you? Oh, well, I mean, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. LinkedIn is definitely the easiest way to contact me. Uh, email, uh, website, uh, but LinkedIn, number one. You find me on LinkedIn. I'm very, very, uh, you know, kind of uh, punctual on that regard, replying back to messages and connection requests. That's super. Well, me, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here today. And to my audience out there, thanks for tuning in for one more time of GSD Presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. And my name is Gary Fowler, and I'm your host. Stay tuned. We'll be back again Thursday with another exciting edition. Stay safe, stay happy, and stay healthy. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Amit. Thank you. Hey, Gary. Yeah, thanks. Hold on a second. We're just done. Um...